The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Clotson. A different sort of episode today. One in which we try and look at the bigger picture that's emerged from the past 70 episodes of Holy Smoke. We've covered a lot of territory. Jesus Christ on Twitter would spend a bit of time dealing with low-life people in their anoraks living in bedrooms in their mother's homes who are just out to upset other people. When the Muslims use the term Islamophobia to shut up any criticism of Islam, we say, oh yeah, you're right. Salafi women were telling me they know for sure that Salafi brothers in London weren't able to provide for more than one wife. They were taking extra wives to satisfy sexual desires. And what I found was actually the Salafi women were not queuing up to be second wives. I'd say the people that are the most dangerous are the ones that join and within six months or six weeks even they are fully, fully signed up. There's the, the zeal of the convert absolutely 100% in. And it seems to be related to how people consume information on the internet. You heard there Jeremy Vine talking about Christians on social media, Richard Landers on Islam and anti-Semitism, Annabelle Ng on Salafi women, and Jamie Bartlett on the strange religion of cryptocurrency. But I think it's the following extracts that point us towards the biggest story. This is something that goes back right to Bergoglio's past as Archbishop of Buenos Aires. He, he was continually associating with clergy who had been accused of a sexual wrongdoing or financial wrongdoing. There seems to be a complete indifference on Bergoglio's part to the moral character of the people he works with. The thing about Justin Welby is that he's a very nice man, but he's not outstanding intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. He's a competent man with some experience in the business world. Yeah. The priests, and he says, we will now have the sign of the peace. They form their mouth like a sort of goat exhaling, and there's nowhere to hide. It is just a terrible moment. You don't know what to do. Should you go into the crouch position on an aeroplane when you're about to crash? That was the historian Henry Sear talking about Pope Francis, Dr Gavin Ashenden, a former chaplain to the Queen, and Quentin Letts of the Times. We were discussing different aspects of church life, but against the same background. There's been a thread running through most of our episodes, and it's this. Christianity is facing its gravest crisis since it became a religion. Its institutions appear to be dying, and if they do, I suspect that the death certificate will read, in the once familiar verdict of English coroner's courts, suicide while the balance of the mind was disturbed. Now, it's a metaphor, folks. I'm not saying that Christianity is going to disappear. And I've no doubt that in the future there will be people calling themselves Anglicans, Catholics, Methodists or whatever. Actually, perhaps not Methodists. And that somebody will say, I'm the Pope or I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. But will their claims to hold those offices carry any more weight than that of the old lady in the nursing home who says she's Queen of Holland? 
What's happening to the churches is called secularisation. We all know that. My point is that the churches aren't fighting secularisation. They're part of it. And that has become excruciatingly obvious in this year of our Lord 2020, in which the church's response to the coronavirus and also the Black Lives Matter protests has revealed their weakness, their lack of intellectual rigour, their control freakery and their panic. And worse, there's been a strange lack of transparency, a suspicion of dishonesty on the part of leading churchmen, and even of contempt for the people who attend their churches. Some of this has been hard to understand, not least because of the increasing untruthfulness of bishops' spokesmen. But it is clearly part of this process of secularisation, both from without and from within, and therefore we need to understand what we mean by that rather dreary word. There are lots of rival definitions out there, but the one that stood the test of time is by the late Dr Brian Wilson of All Souls, Oxford. He wrote that secularisation is the process by which religious institutions, actions and consciousness lose their social significance. In other words, religion ceases to matter in society. Private religiosity might flourish, but even that could wither if religion has no presence in public life. Wilson wrote that in 1966, and I think he's been proved right. The number of people who attend Church of England services every week is about 870,000. A decade ago, it was over a million. So in the course of 10 years, the CAV has lost 200,000 devout worshippers. In 1983, two-thirds of all Britons said they were Christians. That's all, they just said they were Christians when they were asked. It didn't mean they went to church. Now, it's one-third. So, in other words, in less than 40 years, the number of Christians in Britain has roughly halved. Now, you may have come across a quote attributed to G.K. Chesterton, which said that when people cease to believe in something, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And what he was implying was that when people stop being Christians, they start believing all sorts of other nonsense. But in fact, there's lots of evidence to suggest that the number of simple atheists in Britain is increasing all the time. People who are quite happy to say, I do not believe in God. And it will carry on increasing. Do church leaders realise just how much trouble they're in? Now, obviously, they can see that the collection plate isn't full. They can see their flocks dwindling. They're going to have to close parish churches and they're miserable about that. But it's actually depressingly rare to encounter a church man or woman who thinks systematically about the demographic apocalypse that seems to be heading their way. Instead, they talk about society in general and how Christians can witness to society. But there's no consistent message, at least not a memorable one. What's consistent is the platitudinous rhetoric that they employ. And it's rhetoric that's addressed to, and slavishly follows the conventions of, a secular society that actually isn't listening and doesn't care what they think. Perhaps that's inevitable, given that most people aren't Christians. Then again, perhaps it's not inevitable. You'll get an audience, if not paid-up believers, so long as you've got something interesting to say. But they haven't. They're boring. 
We once did an episode of Holy Smoke entitled Why Are Bishops So Boring? Harry Mount, the editor of The Oldie, had this to say. The intellectual level of bishops and clergy more widely has gone down vastly in the last 50 years. Virtue signalling is perhaps the one main destination of bishops and the clergy more widely. Low intellectual level, stratospheric dullness level. If you think Harry was being too harsh, then grit your teeth and listen to this. I'm struck by the events of the last few days again and again and again. I've been listening to those who've been talking about it from within their own experience of injustice as people of colour in this country. It's horrifying. And yet I'm aware too that the church has its own failings. And I come back to the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus says, be angry about injustice, repent of injustice. That means go the other way, take action against injustice. How that action is taken will vary from time to time and place to place. It must never involve the creation of more injustice by seeking to damage other people. But I feel within me again today that great call of Jesus that we are as a church to be those who set our own house in order and who acknowledge our own historic errors and failings. And as a person that I acknowledge that I come from privilege and uh, a place of power as a white person in this country, and then we take action. I imagine some Anglican listeners might be saying to themselves, surely that can't be. And yes, I'm afraid it is. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, the successor of Thomas Cranmer, who was responsible for the unforgettably beautiful prose of the prayer book. Archbishop Welby was educated at Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge, so he was at least right about the white privilege bit. Strange, then, that his Rolls-Royce of an education seems to have left him unable to string two sentences together. What were all those pauses about? Pauses for thought? All he seems to have been thinking is, how can I express my support for Black Lives Matter without going too far? Hence that expertly judged reminder that we shouldn't harm anyone. What you just heard is the sound of yet another churchman desperately trying to claw back some of the influence that Brian Wilson quite correctly predicted they would lose in modern society. They keep trying. It never works. It's not going to work. That's because you can't mitigate the damaging effects of secularisation by becoming secular. I don't mean that the churches shouldn't craft their message so it appeals to secular people. Of course they have to, but that's not what they're doing. They're mimicking the voices of various powerful secular interest groups and doing it badly, like some geriatric ABBA tribute act. Unlike the liberal media, they don't know how to use humour to tap into the millennial market. Unlike the powerful left-wing so-called charities and NGOs that flourish in Whitehall even under Tory governments, they don't know how to empty the taxpayer's pocket. If they sound like anyone, it's the dreariest spokespeople for the public sector. 
Indeed, I often think that the churches delude themselves that they are part of the public sector, even though they haven't actually got any money to spend, and zero authority over anyone except their own employees, who themselves wield no influence in society. The Church of England's deep reverence for the public sector is best symbolised in the person of Sarah Mullally, who was Britain's chief nursing officer in which capacity she took part in various Blairite modernisations of the NHS. She took early retirement, became an Anglican priest, and within five minutes, Justin Welby had made her the Bishop of London. In her previous role, she moved naturally in a world of committees, reports, interim reports, best practice. She was committed to moving the agenda forward, whatever the agenda was, and she ended her career as Dame Sarah Mullally. She is apparently a very nice lady who inspires affection, though various ambitious women clergy are furious that she was catapulted over their heads into such a lofty Episcopal position by Justin Welby. But from his point of view, the appointment made perfect sense, because Sarah Mullally has mastered the modus operandi of the public sector that he admires so much. The move from Dame Sarah to Bishop Sarah has required only a modest adjustment to her rhetorical style. She doesn't need to pause for thought before uttering politically correct platitudes because she speaks that language like a native, unlike the Archbishop of Canterbury, who doesn't but struggles manfully to master it, a bit like a young traditionalist priest learning Latin in order to celebrate the Tridentine Mass. Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, also famously speaks in platitudes, though they have a slightly different flavour. They're peppered with Vatican II buzzwords, though equally content-free. He slips at every available opportunity into the Catholic Episcopal language known as Bishopese, with its mind-numbing emphasis on being gathered together in community. He's been fluent in that language since long before he became a bishop, because he was always determined to become a bishop, and everybody knew that he'd make it. He's a company man, and, like many company men, prefers acquaintances and colleagues to actual friends. He's far from stupid. If he gives a speech and says absolutely nothing memorable, that's because he intended to say absolutely nothing memorable. So you can imagine my surprise when a few weeks ago I heard Nichols make a potentially controversial public statement in absolutely plain language. And here it is. Today, I'm very sorry, but we have to participate in the Mass at a distance. We're no longer able to have a public celebration of Mass in our churches. That was, of course, a response to the outbreak of the coronavirus. And it was the right response. You couldn't possibly have people crowded together in the pews at a time when the contagion was spreading so fast. And at the time, I thought, this could be Cardinal Nichols' finest hour, because in the rest of the statement, he expressed himself with an authority and a conviction that I've never heard from him before. As it turned out, however, it was the beginning of one of the most troubling episodes in the history of the Catholic Church in England and Wales since the restoration of the hierarchy in 1850. Not as disturbing as clerical sex abuse, of course, but perhaps in the long run, just as damaging. Elsewhere in his statement, Cardinal Nichols assured Catholics that their churches would remain open for private prayer. 
But days later, that policy changed. They were shut down completely, and the church said that was a decision of the government. Unfortunately for Cardinal Nichols, one of his bishops, Richard Moth, Bishop of Randall and Brighton, let the cat out of the bag when he wrote to his priests, revealing that it was the Catholic Church that had gone to the government and said, you need to shut us down completely, even private prayer is too dangerous. And the government, according to the bishop, acknowledged its mistake, and so a total lockdown began. During that lockdown, any Catholic priest who questioned the ban on private prayer in churches, or, perhaps more importantly, the ban on administering the sacraments to people in dire need, faced the threat of disciplinary measures from his bishops. This was made perfectly clear. The Catholic bishops have almost total power over their priests and nobody else. And now that lockdown is ending, there's a strange discrepancy between the rules that apply to Anglican and Catholic churches. I'm quoting from an email I was sent by a Catholic priest who said, the main difference is that the Catholic Church is insisting on two volunteer stewards for the entire duration of the church being open. The CV has no such requirement, which is a significant difference. The church has suggested this is a government requirement, but it clearly isn't. Otherwise, it would apply to the CV as well. There have since been reports that only one steward will be required instead of two. This priest wrote to a senior diocesan official asking what the hell was going on. And that official replied that he simply didn't know. Nor do I, but surely it has some connection to that strange business of the Catholic Church of England and Wales going to the government and apparently demanding tighter restrictions on themselves. What I'm certain of, however, is that this crisis has thrown a spotlight onto the Church's relationship with secularisation, revealing several things at once. The coronavirus handed to Church leaders, not just in Britain, but in Europe and America as well, something they craved, but which had been denied to them for a very long time, a measure of genuine influence in society. And some of them, in exercising that influence, displayed a mixture of ruthlessness, vanity, hypocrisy and stupidity. The Catholic bishops of England and Wales, among others, were completely ruthless in the way they enforced the preposterous ban on private prayer in churches and the administration of the sacraments. So much so that towards the end of lockdown, and I don't think this has been reported anywhere, some priests took to holding secret masses, as in Elizabethan times. Only this time, they were hiding from Catholic bishops. As for the charge of vanity, well, who am I to talk? But it was so depressing to see so many patronising bishops holding forth on matters of public health. Clearly so much more comfortable talking about social distancing and the like than any of the teachings of Christianity, especially the difficult ones. And most of the teachings of Christianity are difficult. It was as if they'd been ordained into their beloved public sector, and their favourite bit of it too, health and safety. And so it was with real devotion that they knelt beneath the outstretched palms of their secular consecrators that the state bestowed on them a small degree of genuine authority. Admittedly, it was only the authority to suppress acts of Christian worship and even private prayer in their churches. Never mind there was a whiff of secular power drifting down the empty nave, and they liked it. And they're going to sustain it for as long as possible. 
I think that's why the Catholic bishops have persuaded the government to allow them to carry on policing their parishes post-lockdown with almost Cromwellian zeal. Thomas Cromwell, that is. And hypocrisy? Well, in my opinion, any bishop who gave his or her blessing, explicit or implicit, to the Black Lives Matters protests while simultaneously locking their churches was exhibiting shameless double standards. For the worst example, we have to cross the Atlantic to Washington, D.C., where Catholic Archbishop Wilton Gregory, a talentless protégé of Theodore McCarrick, simultaneously banned his priests from celebrating Mass for their flocks while encouraging them to break social distancing by marching against Trump. Sorry, I mean marching for social justice. Interesting, by the way, that the Episcopal Health and Safety officers were so unconcerned by the real prospect of resurrecting the coronavirus at the protests, some of which packed people together as tightly as a North Korean rally. If they'd pointed that out, they'd have upset the liberal media, and their brief exercise of authority would have been cut short. Finally, stupidity. Look, going to church isn't that much fun for most people, even when the service is done well. I've hated it all my life, I'm afraid. I agree with Ed West, who once wrote that there's nothing quite like the dopamine hit that comes when you hear the words, the mass is ended, from the priest. The Catholic Church is unusual in that, unlike other denominations, it compels people to go to church. Then, suddenly, for reasons genuinely beyond its control, it had to compel people not to go to church. Most priests were sad about this. Many bishops, rather creepily, didn't seem sad at all. On the face of it, that's a very odd misjudgment. It's really upset the clergy. So what lies behind it? I can only refer you back to what I said earlier about power. Telling people they've got to come to church, otherwise their immortal souls are in peril, isn't the exercise of power, not in the 21st century. But locking churches on behalf of a government that's dancing to your tune is power. The problem is that, in the end, all it amounts to is power to damage your own already enfeebled institutions. And the decision to exercise that power with such peculiar zeal, to push it to the limits and beyond, is an act of monumental stupidity. Put very simply, many, many former churchgoers won't be coming back. In the case of Anglicans, for whom churchgoing is essentially voluntary, that will be at least partly a response to the lack of leadership and general wimpishness of their hierarchy during the crisis. Catholics feel that way too, but in their case there's another factor. The bizarre insistence of their bishops that they stay away from churches at all times will fatally undermine the traditional obligation to attend Mass on Sundays. Here's something that's rarely noticed. Today's practising Catholics, including some super-enthusiastic younger ones, do sometimes miss Mass and don't beat themselves up about it. That's because the horror of missing Mass isn't in their DNA, especially if they're converts. Whereas my parents and all four of my grandparents would cheerfully have gone to jail rather than stay at home on Sunday. It's different now. 
The spell wore off with a vengeance for less committed Catholics after the Second Vatican Council, which, as Stephen Bullivant recalls in his brilliant recent book Mass Exodus, dismantled a culture of pious practices that had taken centuries to build. There was plenty of actual dismantling as well. still makes my blood boil to remember how the idiot new parish priest of the church we attended as teenagers tore down the baldacchino in the sanctuary. And now the most important bit of the spell, if you'll forgive me using such an un-Catholic metaphor, has been broken by the coronavirus with the assistance of the bishops. And this has left the most devout believers of all, including many priests, genuinely wondering if the devil has been at work in persuading their shepherds to chase them out of the house of God when all they want to do is pray quietly and safely. But you don't have to believe in the devil or even God to see that church leaders, in the process of genuflecting to the secular establishment, have become stupidly and dangerously estranged from the only people who are likely to attend their services in the future. We had a little illustration of that back in 2016, when only one out of over a hundred Church of England bishops expressed support for Brexit. And then it emerged that 66% of Anglicans have voted to leave the European Union. Now, I'm aware that I'm in danger of constructing a caricature of a liberal bishop here. They're not all as wet as Welby or as manipulative as Nichols. Most are good, rather quiet people, committed Christians, and have the ability to inspire small groups of people. But they are small groups of people, sometimes no bigger than their own staff and a few attendant activists. I think they find it frustrating that people don't listen to them when they pontificate on social equality. That's not just because they haven't got anything interesting to say, though they haven't. It's because the media sense that people aren't interested in the churches. And one reason they're not interested is because they never read about them. So there's a sort of vicious circle operating here. And it's in sharp contrast to the situation just 30 years ago. In the early 1990s, I was a religious affairs correspondent of the Daily Telegraph. I think I was one of five full-time religious reporters. Now, I'm not sure there are any full-time religious reporters, even though some people carry that title. There just isn't the demand. And in a way, that's a good thing for the church leaders, because it means that, to an extraordinary degree, they escape scrutiny. Very few aspects of church life grab the attention of a news editor. One of them, of course, is sexual abuse by the clergy. But even that has to be a pretty big story before it's allocated more than a few column inches or a few seconds of airtime. Now you may say that clerical abuse reached its peak during the 60s, 70s and 80s at a time when the media were less secular than they are today. The churches were held in greater respect, they exercised more secular power, and as a result it was easier for them to squash those very few stories that did emerge. The culture of covering up earlier crimes, however, reached its peak much later, at a time when the indifference that I've been talking about was already a factor. And it still is today. In other words, corrupt bishops benefit enormously from the lack of scrutiny. And so do mediocre bishops, who aren't what you'd call corrupt, but are in a sense corrupted by a general lack of accountability. They don't have to report to any shareholders, they don't have to report to their congregations, they don't have to explain themselves to their clergy, and they don't. 
Their own regulatory bodies are a joke. There are various outside bodies that are supposed to take an interest in them, but there's no real scrutiny, and call me cynical, but I suspect that the Church's deep respect for the ideological prejudices of the public sector works as a bit of an insurance policy here. And this curiously protective aspect of decline, precisely the decline predicted by Wilson 50 years ago, is exploited in different ways by mainstream church leaders all over the world. It's happening most shockingly in the Vatican, where it was reported last week that the Argentinian bishop Gustavo Zanqueta has returned to his job at the Vatican. Sanchetta had been charged in Argentina with aggravated sexual abuse of seminarians, fraud and the mismanagement of funds. He hasn't been acquitted, it's just that the proceedings have ground to a halt because of the coronavirus. And the job he's returned to, specifically created for him by his close friend Pope Francis, who made him a bishop, is, wait for it, assessor of the Vatican's Central Reserve Bank. If any other Western leader had tried to pull off such a stunt, and there have been so many similar scandals under Francis, he'd have been hounded out of office. Is Francis immune because he's Pope, or because the entire Catholic Church has been pushed to the margins of public life by secularisation? Probably a bit of both. But there's another element. Like liberal church leaders everywhere, the Pope has taken out an insurance policy. When the Catholic Church talks about world affairs, its rhetoric is hard to distinguish from that of the very powerful global humanitarian left, for whose benefit it's toned down the language with which it condemns abortion. This reorientation hasn't bought with influence, but it has perhaps bought it something it values even more. Protection from scrutiny. In the long term, of course, such protection is worse than useless, because it helps keep authority in the hands of church leaders who, if they had secular careers, wouldn't be leaders at all. They'd have been pensioned off years ago by any company that hoped to turn a profit. And these days they wouldn't even flourish in the public sector, which does require its senior executives to adopt some of the competitive practices of the private sector. Most bishops, by contrast, have no entrepreneurial gifts at all. Very much the opposite. The only thing they know about money is how to spend it. Naturally risk-averse when it comes to evangelization, they're complete suckers when it comes to investing their capital. If you're a con man, seek out the nearest muddled-headed bishop and tell him about some property investment that will magically transform their diocesan and fortunes. Just sign here, Bishop. I'll look after it. This is the sort of thing that Cardinal George Pell tried to put a stop to in the Vatican. And look what happened to him. Where does this leave ordinary churchgoers? In a very bad place, I'm afraid. And in many cases, somewhere other than their parish churches. Just watch as, over the next few months, diocese after diocese closes churches that they've been wanting to shut for years. Now they can blame it on the coronavirus. So, what do mainstream Christians do? And the answer is that I just don't know. It's obvious that a modest revival of Orthodox Christianity is possible. One which uses the digital tools of the 21st century to cultivate a private religiosity that draws on the astonishing spiritual, 
intellectual and artistic heritage of classical Christianity, about which millennials know absolutely nothing. I remember a conversation I had back in January with one of my very closest friends, Professor Stephen O'Leary, who taught for years at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Southern California. He said, I wouldn't mind kids turning their back on the church if they knew what they were leaving, but they don't have a clue. Stephen said he felt a vocational call to educate bright young people about Augustine and Aquinas and other great Christian thinkers. I don't know if it would have borne any fruit, nor did he. But we never found out, because Stephen died ten days after that conversation. He wasn't a pious Catholic, nor am I. Our politics were very different, but what we shared was a sense of rage at the blundering philistinism of church leaders and the culture of actual dishonesty that increasingly accompanies it. The biggest obstacle to what can only be a fairly small-scale revival of Orthodox Christianity is that both the Catholic and Anglican churches are Episcopal. If you reject the authority of your bishop, you become a sect, and then your revival will have a very short shelf life. Perhaps in future episodes of Holy Smoke, I'll discover reasons for optimism. My only instinct right now is that a necessary but not sufficient condition for survival, let alone revival, is that the careers of hundreds of bishops must come to an end as soon as possible. They betrayed their flocks this year, and not just their flocks. Pause for a moment to think about that, and listen. That sound you hear is a cock crowing. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.